We are continuing this morning in our study of the prophet Elijah. We've been working on this now for many months. And we actually are coming close to the end of it. We'll be wrapping this up in the next couple of weeks. And we'll be moving on from there back to the New Testament. And I haven't quite decided what book we're going to preach from. Whether it's going to be, it's either going to be 1 Timothy or it's going to be Revelation. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Obviously, uh, Revelation would be a very great challenge and all that. It's really the only large book in the New Testament that we have not covered in the time that we've been here, which is an amazing feat in all of itself. Actually, those are the only three books other than Second and Third John, First and Second Timothy, and Revelation. That's it. We've done the whole New Testament in 23 years. Imagine that. And we've done also some Old Testament as we're doing here. Uh, But again, now, one of the things that always amazes me is sometimes uh, when you're going through the Bible, you'll see things that just kind of click with you, and you go, oh, that's where that saying comes from. For instance, we all talk about scapegoats, right? And we know what a scapegoat is. It's someone that gets blamed for something they didn't do and and all of that. Uh, But if you know anything about the Bible, where's it rooted? I mean, the whole idea, and it's a common phrase among people today, not just church people. Everybody talks about scapegoats. But the roots of it are found in Leviticus chapter 16 with that Day of Atonement. That's what this, where the idea of a scapegoat comes from. We've also heard people talk about passing the mantle. Right? In other words, what takes place when a leadership person is stepping down and out and someone else is coming in to take their place. We talk about passing the mantle. Where does that come from originally? From 2 Kings chapter 1. Uh, Before we begin, I just want to remind us of a couple of things. We're going to see the name of Elisha introduced here, and it's always important for us to make a distinction between Elijah and Elisha, not the same person. Elisha was already identified in 1 Kings chapter 19 where uh, God had actually told Elijah, the prophet, when he was at Mount Sinai to leave there and go and he was to find three men and he was to anoint them. He was to find Jehu and anoint him king of Israel. He was to find Hazael and and, and anoint him king of Aram. But he was also to find this fellow named Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And he was to anoint him to be prophet after himself. Beginning with verse 1. And it came about uh, when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. 
And Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Don't you hate it when maybe there's a new movie out? I know there's a lot of movies today that really don't excite believers that much and, and, and all of that, but maybe there's a new movie out, or there's, maybe there's a movie you haven't seen, and other, you've heard people talk about it and, and all of that, and then you're talking with someone one day, and they, they talk about this movie, and they tell you how it ends. Doesn't that just blow it for you? You know, it's like you don't even want to go. How many of you, when you're reading a book, jump to the end to see how it, what, what the end is before you read the beginning? Some people do that. I would hate to do that because to me it's almost like taking away the whole reason for reading the book. Now, the interesting thing about this particular chapter is, is that's exactly what happens here. Is the Word of God tells us at the very beginning what is going to come of all of this. Now, this is a common thing in Scripture, right? You understand that this happens all the time. That God says something. He says he's going to do this, and only later on does he do it. This is what we call prophecy. This is one of the primary things about prophecy is God saying, telling what he's going to do, and then, then later on he does it. And we understand why. And that's because when it comes to be, people can say, you know what, God said that he was going to do this, and oh my goodness, oh my joy, he did it. Just remember this, we read this back when we first started this study of Elisha. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 and following, this is, uh, what we call the, the test of a true prophet, written by Moses, or through God, uh, God through Moses. I will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he, is, he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So we understand why very often the ending comes at the beginning when it comes to Scripture that everyone will understand and everyone will know that when it actually happens, it happens because God determined and willed that it would. Fulfillment of prophecy. I don't want to spoil the beans, but we're told here right in the very beginning what's going to happen with Elijah, and that is that this whirlwind is going to come along and it's going to carry him up to heaven. 
It's going to be on this particular day. There's not another day that's going to pass before this happens to Elijah. Lori and I last week, remember how windy it was after church last week? And we had that storm come through and the wind was just blowing. I'm telling you, we had probably close to hurricane gale force winds in our backyard at times. I went out and watched the pine trees blowing and they were, they were bent over, way over, and you could hear their trunks beginning to crack. That's how strong the wind was at our house. But I noticed the other day as we were driving home, there were a lot of these little whirlwinds. Did you see some of them too? One of the neatest things, when I was in elementary school, there was one that came through the, the playground one day, and it was strong enough, it actually picked a couple of kids up off their feet. Not, not high, but just a little bit. Isn't that amazing? Now, I want you to understand something, and that is, maybe we need to make a distinction between a windstorm and a whirlwind here, because you need to understand that this Hebrew word can be interpreted either way. It could, could be referenced just to a strong wind that was going to come along and, and carry Elijah up. Or it could be really a whirlwind. And I think probably a whirlwind, because... Uh, windstorms that just blow, they just blow things along. Whirlwinds, on the other hand, have the ability to actually lift things up. And we can understand that a tornado is like the premier kind of whirlwind, right? And we know how they are able to pick up and carry up. This is quite a journey. You may not realize this. They're going to start out in a place called Gilgal. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Then they're going to Bethel, and then from Bethel, then they go back, they go back toward Gilgal, just a few miles from Gilgal. So, so they're making almost a U-turn here, go back to a place called Jericho, which we're familiar with, and from there go to the Jordan River. Now, if you were to map that out, what you would find is that's somewhere between 25 and 30 miles. And also, if you begin to dig more into the language, what you would understand is it doesn't come right out and say it, but it certainly is implied that they walked, that they walked the whole way. Now, you and I think about that, and I'm not sure there's anyone in this room that's ever walked, you know, 25 or 30 miles at one time in their whole lifetime. One of the things that amazed Lori and I when we were in Uganda the first time is there's such a great joy that you find that many of the believers have in the Lord that sometimes doesn't seem to be that prevalent here. One of the amazing things was this. We went to the first worship service, and it started like at 8.30 in the morning, and, 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 and there was hardly anybody there, and we're going, gosh, where is everybody? The missionaries were there, we were there, and, you know, and all that, but very few of the local people. But, but as time started clicking off, more and more people showed up. And so after the worship service, we, you know, we're saying, what's going on here? Some of these people were an hour and a half late because you need to understand the service was three hours long. They had two sermons, etc. And one of the missionaries said to us, you need to understand something. Some of these people walked 20 or 25 miles to come to church this morning. Now, can you imagine doing that? What if you got up this morning and your, and your car wouldn't crank and you didn't have any other way to, to be driven here or whatever? Would you walk? Even if it was just half a mile. We live in a very amazing time. Well, it, it would be the equivalent of walking a marathon almost. It's about the same distance. 
And, you know, these runners, these long-distance runners, they can run it in two-plus two hours, 26 miles. If you were to walk it, it could take you 10 hours. It might take you days. It probably would take me days, as a matter of fact. The reason I bring this to your attention is just that you would see that the stuff that you and I just can't hardly even imagine taking place used to be commonplace, and there's certain places in the world where it still is. They weren't just going on a little hike. They were covering a very significant distance on foot. Gilgal, you probably, maybe you remember that if you know anything about the Bible. It was the place that Joshua established as his place of, of plan of operations when, when it came to the conquest. In other words, that's kind of where their headquarters were, and he sent out you know, the, the soldiers from there to, to enter in the conquest of the land. Uh, later on in, in the Old Testament, when we get into the historical period that we're at now, Gilgal is acknowledged as being a place of very great wickedness and evilness. It's like this, one of the standards of, you want, you want to see what wicked and evil people are like? Go to Gilgal. That's what it had become. One of the interesting things is this, is this scripture never really comes out specifically and says why God sent Elijah to Gilgal to start with. I want you to know something. By this time, Elisha evidently does know what's going to happen with Elijah, and this is probably the main reason he doesn't want to stay behind. He wants to be with his Lord because, because the, uh, the Lord God is going to take Elijah up on that day. And you can understand that they've been together now for some time. We don't know exactly how long. But Elijah's been serving Elijah for some time, and Elijah's been teaching. He's been training Elisha all along to step into his shoes when it was his time to go. And that time has now come. And Elijah said to Elisha, now stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as sure as the Lord lives and your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. I would imagine that Elisha probably wanted to be there when Elijah was taken up for a lot of reasons. And one of those, it would be a way of, you know, having more of a, departing, you know, that sort of thing. But at the same time, wouldn't you want to be there? If you knew God was going to do something like this, would you not want to be there just to see something like this happen? Now, we know something about Bethel. Bethel is, 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 literally means the house of God, Right? And we know that Abraham visited Bethel when he, was, when he first came to the promised land. It's one of the places where he built an altar to, to God when it was still the land of Canaan. 
We also know that it was a place that, ja- that Jacob spent the night when he was leaving, when he was running from Esau, his brother, who was going to kill him. He spent the night at Bethel, and that's where he had that vision that we call Jacob's ladder of the angels ascending and descending on this ladder that went from heaven down to earth. So we understand that there was a specialness of the presence of God in this place called Bethel, and that was long established. The sad thing is this. If you're familiar with this history, you know that in the days of Solomon, those were the glory days of Israel, and then Solomon fell into idol worship later on in his life, and he turned away, not completely from the Lord, but at least in part from the Lord. And what the Lord said is, because of that, I'm going to divide the kingdom, and it's not going to be in your day, but it will be in the day of your son. Lo and behold, Solomon dies. This is another prophecy that comes to truth. Rehoboam, his son, takes up office in his place, and the kingdom immediately divides. And Rehoboam is only left with Judah and a portion of Benjamin. And the rest of it goes and becomes the northern kingdom of Israel. Not a single good king mentioned in Scripture for that kingdom for all of the hundreds of years that it existed. And as time went by, the kings became more wicked and more wicked and more evil. What Jeroboam did, he was the first king after the kingdom divided. He was the first king of Israel. One of the things he did was this, is he had two golden calves cast, right, reminiscent of the golden calf that they did at Sinai. Remember that with with Aaron? And he did it for a purpose. And this is what the purpose was. This was Jeroboam's reasoning. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. In other words, he doesn't want his people to continue to go to Jerusalem because he knows ultimately if that happens, there's a chance he's going to lose their heart. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, he's renewing calf, golden calf idol worship in the very midst of Israel. And he, he had two statues or two idols made. One went to a place called Dan in the north. And guess where the other one was? In Bethel. So you need to understand something. That when Elijah goes to Bethel, he's going in very deeply into the enemy camp. We're going to see here Elijah swear three times that he will not leave or he will not stay behind. Elijah is going to encourage him three times to stay behind, and three times he's going to swear an oath that he will not by any means stay, that he's going to stick it out with Elijah all the way through. And what he says, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, I will not leave. You do understand he's saying here that, that, that God will die and you will die before I will not go with you. I mean, can you imagine that? We know that there is a living God. There has to be a living God. If there were no living God, there would be no life. Inanimate things cannot accomplish things. We understand that. 
We understand that one of the arguments in Scripture over and over again against idols is they can't do anything. They can't talk, they can't think, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't do anything. And yet people bow down to them and worship them. How ridiculous is that? But by swearing as he does, taking this oath, Elijah is basically saying, there's nothing in heaven and earth that is going to keep me from being with you. I'm going. Reminds you somewhat of the, the oath that Ruth made to Naomi, where she said, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. mentioned a contemporary song the other day that I've been singing quite a bit. Here's another one. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. I will follow you. How many times have you said something like that to people that I will never leave you? Then on occasion you have. How many people have said to you that I will never leave you? And then at some time, they actually did leave. We understand that a lie should can say what he says for one reason. Because there is a God. And he's trusting in that God to make it a reality. We understand that there is, when it comes to believers, that there is a sweetness in parting that comes when a loved one passes away, right? Uh, In other words, there's a sense of joy for them when you think about the fact they're not going to suffer anymore, they're going to be removed from all the bad stuff that goes on in this world and, and all of that. So there's a sense of joy in it, but at the same time, there's always a sadness too. Because this person that, that, you know, is dear to you, that you love, that you're used to being able to go and sit and talk with and all of that is not going to be available to do that anymore. We need to understand that this is something of of what's going on with Elijah. These two men have bonded with one another. they, They deeply love one another. They want the very best for each other. And not only that... Elijah wears some awfully big shoes. And when he leaves, Elisha is going to be expected to wear them. Rather intimidating that could be. I can remember Doug Cogswell years ago when he had open heart surgery. He had a valve replacement done in his heart. It must have been almost 20 years ago now. It's been a long time ago. But right for the surgery, he looked at me and said, Keithy, you know what? This is a win-win situation for me. He said, I can't lose today. Because if I pass away, then I get to go home to be with Jesus. And if I don't, then I just get some more time to spend with Judy. Isn't that great attitude to have? And that was almost 20 years ago when Doug's still with us. 87 years old now, I think.
Well, just remember this. It's always important for us to help put things in perspective by remembering New Testament, in particular New Testament Jesus. Had 12 guys swear that they would stand with him. Made an oath that they would not depart. Basically looking at all the others and saying, John's saying about Peter, he may go, but I'm not going. And Peter's saying about John, well, he may go, but I'm not going. But every single one of them scattered when the time came. And it shows us a picture, really, of ourselves. I hope that when you see them, you see yourself. Not these guys that, that were really weak in their faith and, and, and all that, because we know that their faith was very strong, because they, they're the ones that are so much responsible for the, for most of, for the New Testament in here and the carrying on of the, the ministry of Jesus after he left. Spread to the, we were talking about this in Pastor, yes, spread to the known world like a wildfire in half a century. My whole point is this, is even though Elijah and Elisha are, in a sense, types of Christ, in other words, they're prefigurings of Christ to come. They are God's spokesmen. They speak on God's behalf. God does miracles through them, etc., etc., etc. There's still a long way between them and Jesus. That Jesus' mission was far deeper far more involved, far more personal. There's a sense in which you, got, you, and, you and I are disciples of Elijah. You don't understand that? But we understand that we truly are disciples of Jesus. And what makes that possible is the fact that Jesus has walked on ground that no one else ever has. There's a sense in which everybody scattered from Jesus. And that's one of the great sacrifices he made on our behalf. In other words, he knew emptiness. He knew loneliness like none of us ever will. For us, that we would not know it. That we would not have to know it. The sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elijah and they asked him, Do you know that this day the Lord is taking your master from over your head? And he replied, Indeed I know. Do not speak it. Or do not speak of it. Or be still. Or be calm. Or be, don't be anxious. Sons of the prophets, we don't take this literally here. We're not talking about the sons of Zechariah and Haggai and Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and people like that. You need to understand something, that most of those men were single men. They didn't have a wife and they didn't have any children. So when you see sons of prophets in the Bible, it's not talking about literal physical sons of prophets. What it's talking about is disciples of the prophets. Those men, in particular, who studied under 
the prophets. I mean, we don't think about this. What I'm telling you here is this is, is really, I, probably, I think the reason that God sent Elijah to Gilgal first and then to Bethel, because you can see the same thing happen uh, in Bethel that took place in Gilgal. The sons of prophets are going to come out, the same conversation is going to take place, and whatever. What that tells us is that, that, that Elijah himself had disciples who lived in Gilgal. He also had disciples who lived in Bethel. Like a school where he probably taught. And now we can understand more clearly possibly why God sent him on these errands and it was to go to those men to speak with them, to show himself to them one more time before the Lord took him to heaven to be an encouragement so that they would be strengthened in their faith and their knowledge and their understanding, that they would be better prepared to continue on the ministry after Elijah went to heaven. Obviously, these sons of the prophets were very important to Elijah. There's a sense probably in which this was his way of saying goodbye to a lot of people. We wonder how it is that they've come to know that, uh, that the Lord is going to take Elijah on that day because they come up to him and they make comment to Elisha about it. Now, we don't know for certain. Maybe Elijah's been telling them this for a while. You know, they have, you know, class one day, and he tells them, springs this on them, that, you know, 30 days from now, the Lord's going to take me up to heaven in a whirlwind. Maybe that took place. We don't know. We don't really know how in the world they came in light to this information. We only know that, it, that they did, and it was by God's means that God revealed this to them because God wanted them to know these things. I would imagine that Elijah is here to strengthen, to build, to increase faith. The Lord has often revealed all kinds of things to people before they've taken place. I mean, you see it all the way through the Bible. Think about Noah. He told Noah what he was going to do. Think about Abraham. He told him what he was going to do. You think about Moses. God told Moses what he was going to do. You think about David. God told David what he was going to do. And very often, many of the things that the Lord said he was going to do, he did in their time. But a great deal of the, uh, of the time, the things that were spoken about were future things. Things that they never saw in their life. Now, Noah really, he saw very much in his lifetime. Abraham saw very little of what God said was going to happen. Well, has the Lord revealed anything to us about the future? (laughs) 
Well, there's one biggie. I mean, there's all kinds of things he has enlightened us to about the future. But one of the big ones is this, is that he's coming back. Right? He's made that known. That he's left, he's gone to heaven for now, but in a, in a, there's going to come a time when Jesus is going to come back. Going to come back. And you know, all the people are today are so much into this, and you know, Jesus come back any time. Now, let me tell you, he could, he could come back before I get the next sentence out. We all understand that. But you also need to understand this, that there, in every single generation of the church for the last 2,000 years, there have been believers who have been convinced as much as they possibly could be that Jesus was coming back in their time. And we sit here 2,000 years later, and he hasn't done it yet, right? You hear it all the time. The signs are there. Jesus is at the door. Let me tell you, he is at the door. But he hasn't stepped foot across it yet because he's not back yet. You hear it all the time. Every time we have an earthquake, I start getting letters in the mail from this pastor and that person, you know, all over the place. And it's talking about there's this earthquake. That means Jesus is coming back. And if you take the Bible for what it says, what Jesus says, his own words is that when you hear things like that, those are not the signs of the end. Those are just birth pangs. They're the beginning of things. We're still here. Right? We know that in Jesus Christ that when we die, that we're going to heaven to be with him in spirit. Our body will stay here. And then in the resurrection, it'll be raised back to life again and we'll be reunited with our glorified spirit and all of that. That time's coming for all of us. Unless Jesus comes back first, right? And one, one of these times, you need to understand that one generation is eventually going to get it right. Somebody's going to get it right eventually. Maybe accidentally, but eventually somebody's going to get it right. So what does Jesus have us here for? What is it Jesus is waiting for? Well, one of the big things is this, is that all who are destined to come to him, will come to him. Let me ask you this. If, if you were scheduled to be born 200 years from now, and would you, would you want everybody to wait till Jesus to, for Jesus to come back in your time? Probably. <laughs> what I'm saying here is this, is you need to understand something. That is that God, Jesus is not coming back until everybody comes to him who's going to come to him. That's what he's waiting for. And we don't know when the end of that's going to happen. But he will come. He said it and he will do it. We have no doubt about that. The interesting thing here is that Elijah does know. You know, these, these sons of the prophets, they knew. We don't know how. We don't know how Elijah even knew it. But he knew. He knew it when they came to him and said this to him. He, he said, I know. He knew that Elijah was leaving. It is interesting what he says here, because you can interpret it a number of different ways. It can be interpreted as be quiet or be silent, or be, it can be interpreted as be still. What I think it probably was was more like, don't be anxious. It'll be all right. 
Elisha finds himself in the position of handing to guide others through a difficult situation that is perhaps even more difficult for him. In leaders' position or leadership position, sometimes you find yourself in that situation because you're a leader. You have to lead the people through a difficult time that you may be struggling with yourself. Now, I can imagine that's a lot of what's going on with Elisha. Can you imagine the doubts and things like that he has in his mind right now? He's seen this man. He's listened to this man. He's, he's, he's lived with this God-fearing man called by God, claimed by God. And their love has grown very strong. And now he's going to be gone. And who's everybody going to look to? To him. Leaders make those kinds of things or find themselves in those circumstances quite often. What I think about is when I do funerals. Let me say there's a sense of joy that comes in doing funerals when you are very confident about people's salvation. I mean, they're really, I mean, you really, it's a delight to do it in a sense. But very often you're talking about people that you've been very close to, that they've been family to you. You've broken bread with them. You've sat with them. You've talked with them. They've, They've told you very deep things and you've maybe told them some very deep things. You understand that Elijah's role model is going and he's going to be left holding everything. So why are we here? Well, we're here, we're waiting for Jesus, but we're also here to do the Lord's bidding. And that's true for everybody that's in this room. Our roles may be different. Some of you may be stepping into leadership roles. You may be already in leadership roles. You may be stepping down from leadership roles at some point. But we just got to remember this. And that is we're still here for a reason. And the reason is Jesus. To be about our Father's business. Just as he was. And for us to do that, it means we have to open up our lives to other people which some people don't want to do. A lot of people don't want to do. I am missing Deborah Redmond's mom, Sandy, terribly. And most of you are too. Because she was one of the social people. She had people in her house all the time for dinner and things. Sandy's ministry still going on? I hope so. It really ought to be. The church desperately needs that. It's easy to fall into this retirement mentality, guys, today. 
You know, I worked my job for 40 years or whatever. I had to do this, that, and the other. I was a father. I was a husband. I was this, that, and the you know, employee. And I couldn't do what I wanted to do with my own time. Now I'm retiring. It's time for me to live my life for myself. Let me tell you guys, that, doesn't, that may work out there, but it does not work in the church. There is no retirement. We have to be about our Father's business. And that might look very differently for a lot of different people. But I just hope you're not one of those people who's just sitting here just just biding your time and wasting your time away doing hardly anything of anything for anybody. There's a hurting world out there around us. And we've seen that depicted so clearly in a lot of the things that have happened in our nation over the last bit of time. We see people striking out in hatred and anger and threats and, you know, this, that, and the other. And that's the message a lot of people are getting. But let me tell you something. There's another message everybody desperately, desperately needs to hear. And that is the message of the gospel. And we need to willfully intend to share it in our life, in what we do, in what we say, in who we hang around with. And let me just tell you this. I hope your very best friends are Christians, but I hope you have some people in your life that are not believers. Because if you don't, you're not being faithful to the Great Commission. You're sitting, waiting, loving your life, and not concerned about the life of anybody else around. So, what are we going to do?